imitators of God. And, uh, you know, at first glance, that seems to be a fairly easy verse to look at. We all know what an imitator is. It's a preschooler with a brother. And what other big brother does, little brother does, and that's, that's imitation. Um, but it says to be an imitator of God, you know, sort of like play follow the leader with God. And, and whatever he does, you do. And whatever um, he says, you say, and that, that kind of thing. So that, that's pretty easy to understand until you start to think about it. You know, what do you mean be an imitator of God? I mean, I, I thought the gospel was all about saving me from my sin so I could be happy, happy, happy all the time. And now it's telling me I need to be like God. Is that like for advanced students or something? Or, or maybe that, you, maybe you only get to this verse if, if you have enough, enough merit badges or seniority or something. No, in point of fact, this, this is actually at the very heart and the very core of what it means to be a child of God, to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Let's see if I can illustrate that. Uh, if you go back into the Old Testament, you'll find that the foundation of Israel's relationship to God was based on this idea of being an imitator of God. It wasn't phrased exactly that way, um, but it was phrased. Uh, if you go back into the book of Leviticus, Leviticus is a... Um, a book that gives the children of Israel the law, what God expects them to do and how to behave and what their lives should be like. Uh, there's all kinds of laws being given. This was uh, given to them while they were wandering through the wilderness, left Egypt on the way to the promised land. And, and as God gave them law, he gave them uh, some laws that were moral laws, uh, things like don't kill people, um, you know, don't cheat and lie, don't commit adultery, uh, you know, don't, don't be greedy, uh, you know, honor your father and your mother, keep the Sabbath, and, and, you know, those kinds of laws. There were moral laws uh, about behavior. And then another kind of law are what are called cultic laws. These were laws about uh, how to worship. In other words, when you went to the temple, what kind of sacrifice should you bring? And, uh, and a lot of that was, was based upon your income and, and your... your um, uh, economic status because not everybody could afford a, a, a full-grown cow or something. So, uh, uh, you know, maybe you brought a pigeon, maybe a turtle dove, and, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, but there were all kinds of laws about the kinds of sacrifices to be offered and when they should be offered and how you should work. And those were called cultic laws. They were laws about how to worship. And then there were dietary laws. Uh, the dietary laws uh, told you what you could eat and what you should not eat. It was basically, is it okay to eat crawfish? And uh, that's actually in there. And uh, by the way, it's not. And so um, uh, you uh, uh, have these three kinds of laws. Now the thing is, as God is giving these laws through Moses, he pauses. In fact, at one point he's giving a series of moral laws and cultic laws and talking about uh, how to behave and, and how to worship. And it's almost as if God stopped and says, wait a minute, I want you to understand what this is about. And he says this, you will be holy because I am holy. You shall be holy because I am holy. In other words, the holiness of God is the foundation of God's law, the foundation of how we relate to God and so forth. And in, in one instance, that law, uh, that, that phrase, you shall be holy for I am holy, is given in the, um, uh, in the midst of the cultic and moral laws. 
But the other time it's used, and this is Leviticus 19, it's given in uh, context where God is talking about the dietary laws. And so it's, it's, it's sort of like he says, uh, you know, the shellfish and the, and the crawfish, nah, don't, don't eat that stuff. You shall be holy because I am holy. And you suddenly figure out, what does holiness have to do with seafood? You know, what difference does it make what kind of seafood you eat? Well, it, it, it goes like this. God's holiness means that he is totally other than who we are. He's totally other than the world. God is not just a segment of the world that got bigger and better. God is totally other than the world. And that's what his holiness means. When you say God is holy, it means he is separate from the world. He is, he is unto himself. Uh, his glory surrounds him. It's all about his glory. And so the holiness of God means he is separated from the world. God is not defined by the world. He is not defined by culture. He's not defined by our history and our opinions. God is holy. He is distinct and he is separate. That's what it means to say God is holy. And so when God says to the children, you shall be holy because I am holy, he is saying you too will be separated from the world. You too will be defined not by your culture and not by your society, not by your history, not by the whim of, of, of fashion and fad, but rather you will be defined by the holiness of God, the totally otherness of who God is. You shall be holy, separated from the world, distinct, because God is totally separated, totally other than the world. And so that's the foundation of the law. And twice it's given, once in Leviticus 11, once in Leviticus uh, 19, where God says, you shall be holy because I am holy, because God is so distinct. We are to be distinct and defined by the nature and character of God, not by the world. Now Peter, uh, the disciple of Christ, which was not his denomination, but it, it was who he was. But Peter, the, the disciple of Christ, actually builds on that. Let me, let me give that to you. Um, this is in 1 Peter chapter 1, and I'll get back to Ephesians. I really know where I am. But uh, in, in chapter 1, as, uh, at, at verse 14, 1 Peter 1, 14, Peter says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, in the, in the New Testament... Uh, the same uh, principle, the same dynamic is still going on. The holiness of God calls us to holiness. Who God is, distinct from the world, calls us to live a life of distinction from the world. I want to read on, though. Um, Peter goes on to say, If you call him Father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. See, the blood of Jesus calls us to holiness, the holiness of God. That's what Peter is getting at. Uh, and you, you say, well, where did Peter get that? He sort of got it from Jesus. You remember the Sermon on the Mount? It was in all the papers. But the Sermon on the Mount, uh, at one point, Jesus is talking about uh, God's requirement of us is more than just external action. It's about the heart. Uh, this is the part where 
Uh, he says, you've heard it said of old, you, you shall not kill. I tell you, don't even get angry at your neighbor. You've heard it said, uh, don't commit adultery. I'm telling you, don't even lust after a woman. You've heard it said, not, don't, uh, uh, if, if you get a divorce, make sure you do it legally. He said, I'm telling you, divorce is not a part of God's plan. Uh, it, you've heard it said, if you're going to swear, well, swear gently and, and, and by the right things. He says, I'm telling you, don't swear at all. Just say yes, just say no, and let that be it. He's, and he said, and you've heard it said that you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. He says, I tell you, you've got to love your enemies. And not only that, but if he slaps you on the right side, you turn the left and, and, you, know, and, and you know, things like that. So uh, at the end of that, at, at the end of saying God isn't interested in just mechanical external obedience. He's interested in a heart that is right and a heart that's reflective of who God is. At the end of that, he says this. He said, and be ye perfect. I learned to King James. Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. In other words, the Sermon on the Mount is built on the same principle. Who God is in his character and nature determines who we are in our conduct, our character, and our nature. And we are to be perfect. Why? Because God is perfect. By the way, that uh, gives you the, se- the, the, the next thing to say when you're talking to a friend, a neighbor, a coworker, or whatever, and they say something like, well, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. You really think, that, yeah, I'm basically a good person. I, I think I'm good enough to get into heaven. You say, well, what's a passing grade to get into heaven? You know, when I was in school, 70 was a passing grade. Now all you get is participation certificates anyway, so it doesn't matter. But, uh, but you know, what, what is a passing grade? It was 70 when I was going through school. It was a D minus, but you passed. So what's a passing grade to get into heaven? You know, is, it, is it 80%, 90%, you know, something like that? And, and I've never had anybody tell me that they were 100% good. Usually I say, how good are you? They'll say, well, about 90%. 90. The, the people with a really good self-image will say, 95% good. I'm, I'm good 95% of the time. I say, well, that's great. Here's God's grading scale, 100%. Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. That's the standard, is the perfection and the holiness of God. Elsewhere in in Luke's Gospel, chapter 6, verses uh, 34 and 35, 36, uh, Jesus is talking about being um, uh, forgiving and and, uh, gracious to other people. And he, he concludes that section of his teaching. He says to him, he says, you will be merciful, you should show mercy, because your Father in heaven is merciful. In other words, this this is just a total foundational principle of the Christian life. Who God is defines who we ought to be. God's character and nature must define our character and our nature. So that's what Paul is getting at when he comes down into uh, Ephesians chapter 5. He's just finished up uh, at the end of 4. You know, be kind one to another, tenderhearted, uh, forgiving one another as God, for Christ's sake, forgave you. You know, you forgive because God forgives. And then he sort of summarizes the, the whole thing in verse 1 of chapter 5. And then he goes on for the rest of the book to sort of draw out what does it mean to be an imitator of God in your daily life. And so uh, with that kind of as the introduction, uh, let's look at verses um, 1 through 6 of Ephesians chapter 5. Paul says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. 
Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Let's bow together in prayer. Gracious Father, I thank you for family, I thank you for friends, and I thank you for Christian friends and family, fellow believers in our homes and in our families. But today I want to pray especially for our loved ones who are not believers, members of our families who do not know Christ. I want to pray that your Holy Spirit would first of all surround them with your protective care and that you would keep them safe. And I pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit then would open their eyes each day to see something of your glory and the wonders of creation around us, to experience the wonders of your grace as they, as they come to know the, the dreadfulness of their sin but the majesty of your love. Father, I pray for our lost loved ones that your grace would break through and melt the heart of stone that, that would soften the hardened heart. Father, that would open the eye that is closed to you that our lost loved ones would come to know you and serve you through Jesus Christ. Father, help us to be witnesses. Help us to be kind and loving. Help our testimony to go beyond words but to be seen in action. Father, we know you love them. We know you love our lost loved ones more than even we love them. So, Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would break through in their lives and bring them to Christ. And, Father, we pray it for your glory in Jesus' name. Let me suggest to you that Ephesians chapter 5 verse 1 is kind of a barometer, thermometer, measuring stick of our journey to Christian maturity. And the reason I say that is that um, as you read this verse, very simple verse, be imitators of God. Well, let me just ask you, how did you respond to that? Be an imitator of God. What went on in your head when you heard those words? Yeah, yeah, okay, that's Bible. It's about God, it's about, oh, okay, yeah. Be imitators of God. Did you hear that? And what happened in your heart? What happened to you emotionally and physically when you read that verse? Be an imitator of God. The, um, the meaning of the verse is, is pretty simple. We mentioned that a moment ago. Imitate God. So, you know, it's like a game of follow the leader. Whatever God does, you're going to do. And wherever he goes, you're going to go. And that, that's pretty simple until you understand it's, it's not quite as, as straightforward as that because there are some things that God does that we cannot do. God created the universe. He created it out of nothing. First, there was nothing at all. 
then there was something, this universe. God designed all the laws of physics and all the laws of nature. He put it together, and, and if you look at, at creation in, uh, through the eyes of faith, you see the brushstrokes of a master artist who has, who has crafted this magnificent thing called the universe. God created the universe. You and I can't create a universe. Now, I know there's some people who live in a world of their own. And uh, you, you may have had kids in your household who sort of constructed an entire world of, of their own. But in point of fact, we cannot take nothing and turn it into something. We can be creative and take something that God created and manipulate it so it looks like something else. But ultimately, only God is the creator. We can be creative, but only God is the creator. So when it says, be an imitator of God, we can't create the world And God is sovereign over the world. He is sovereign everywhere at all times in every circumstance. He alone has the right to rule. We do not have sovereignty over the universe and over reality. When we claim to have sovereignty, that's called sin. When we think we're in charge, when we think we can do whatever we want to do, that's called sin. And so we we can't be absolute sovereign over the the world. Uh, Theologians have a word for God, uh, and the the word is aseity. And it comes from, well, it's two Latin words. I fooled you that time. But uh, but anyway, and it's a word that means that God uh, exists solely within himself. His being, his existence, his reality is all within himself. You and I are dependent beings. We depend upon God to sustain us. If God does not hold the universe together, every molecule in your body suddenly becomes an atomic bomb. If God does not hold the universe together, we cannot survive. Our existence, our being, depends upon God. But God's being and existence depends only on himself. He is self-contained. He he exists for and within himself. We cannot do that. So God has certain attributes. He has certain virtues. There are aspects of his character and his nature that we cannot participate in. Now, again, theologians have a word for that. They call those communicable attributes. Now, before you get upset, you know the word communicable. You know it from diseases. And I'm not saying God is a disease, so don't, don't say that. But, uh, uh, but if you have a disease and it's contagious and somebody else can, can get it, that's called a communicable disease. Am I right? Thank you. <laughs> I know you're out there. But the, uh, it, it's a communicable di- disease. Why? Because you can share it with others. And being a good Christian, you should always share your diseases with others. But, but anyway, but if you have a disease that nobody else can catch that you cannot share that's called an incommunicable disease because you cannot share it now uh when when we talk about god we talk about communicable attributes of god these are things that god does and can share with us and there are incommunicable attributes of god and those are things that we cannot share in for instance god is truth he's absolute truth and we can participate in the truth of god 
we can know just the smallest sliver of the truth, but such as it is um, uh, connected to God, then we can know the truth. God is love. And while we can never attain to the majesty of God's love and the immensity of God's love, yet we can participate in the love of God through Jesus Christ. So we can share in the truth, we can share in the love. Uh, A little bit earlier, Paul said we are to forgive as as God has forgiven us in Christ. And so uh, the forgiveness of God, the, uh, uh, the merciful nature of God, the mercy of God, we can participate in that. And so there are attributes of God that we can uh, participate in and that can be a part of our lives. And so when the Bible says, be imitators of God, it's not saying be God in, 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 in the totality of who God is, but rather participate in those attributes, the character, the nature of God that can be shared with us by the power of his Holy Spirit. Now the next question comes to be, well, what does that look like? How do we know what, what there is about God that we can participate in and what are the things about God that, that are beyond us because they belong to God alone. Uh, and we could just philosophize about it, but God gives us the answer and the answer is Jesus Christ. You remember that when Jesus was in the upper room with the disciples the evening before he was arrested and then tried, uh, he was talking to his disciples and at one point Philip says, Jesus... If you would just show us the Father, that would be enough. You know, with all this that's going to happen, everything you're telling us, just show us the Father, give us a a, a vision of God so we can know who God is, show us the Father, that'll be enough for us. Jesus looked at him and said, look, Philip, said, "Uh, have you been this long with me? You're still not getting it? Then Jesus said this, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Jesus said, if you have seen him, you have seen the Father. In other words, just just think about it for a moment. Jesus, the second person of of the Trinity, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is incarnate, comes and takes upon himself the fullness of humanity without sin. And so the absolute divinity of God the Father is seen in the incarnation of the Son in the perfect sinless man. If you want to know what aspects of God can be brought into human life, you just look at Jesus. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 11.1 says, be imitators of Christ. It's not like he couldn't make up his mind, should I imitate God, should I imitate Christ? By the way, that's a pretty good argument for the deity of Christ. But he said, be an imitator of God, be an imitator of Christ. It's one and the same thing. By imitating Christ, by following Christ, then we are brought into following who God is. And God's character and nature then comes out into our lives. So when Paul says, be imitators of God, he's saying, by, and, and then, you, you notice the end of that verse, he says, as beloved children. This isn't a scheme to get saved. You know, if you can act like God long enough, then God will save you. No, God saves us by his grace, Ephesians chapter 2. And then we are brought into his family, and as children of God, as his family, then we imitate the Father. We imitate God as a result of that. So that, that's, that's what he's talking about. He's saying in Christ, then um, uh, imitate God through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, a moment ago, I suggested to you that this verse is a barometer of where you are in Christian growth. How you responded to this verse will tell you a lot about where you are in growing and maturing as a Christian. Uh, 
Because, I mean, the, the way most of the world looks like, those who don't know Christ at all, look at that. The imitators of God, one, one group will say, are you kidding? Don't believe in God anyway. Well, you, what do you mean, be imitator of God? I'm doing just fine on my own, thank you very much. That's the definition of sin. That's someone who doesn't know the Father. That's someone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. But the other part that the world will do, they say, be imitators of God. I've got that nailed. Of course I'm an imitator of God. After all, didn't you know that I'm a little God unto myself? I'm pretty much in charge of my own life anyway. I can, I can do all these things. I'm a good person. And so as I, as I go through life, I am, I'm, I'm basically... Uh, doing this on my own already. I don't need the Bible to tell me that. Being an imitator of God is superfluous because after all, I'm attaining to the goodness that I think is, is appropriate to my uh, life. Now, now, the Bible says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Living without God, living as an atheist is one of the most, it, not one, it is the most irrational way to live. You have to just stop thinking about things. Just feel stuff. But uh, uh, only a fool will go through life saying, there is no God. And it's a greater fool who says, eh, there might be a God, but I'm, I am that God. I'm, I'm at the center of the universe. That just doesn't pan out. It just doesn't work. In fact, that's what the serpent came and said to Eve. The serpent came to Eve and said, look, Eve, um, you know, if you eat of, the, of this tree, the knowledge of good and evil, if you eat of that tree, you know what will happen? You'll be God's. You'll be just like God. You don't need to be this, this obedient, you know, uh, person who's always doing what God says. You can decide on your own. Essentially, the human race fell, sin entered the world when people decided, I can be my own God. So if you look at this verse, be imitators of God, and you're saying, well, e either I've got it covered on my own, or um, it really doesn't matter, there's no God anyway, uh, you're missing the point, and uh, what you need to do is really come to Christ. You need to come to Christ. Because that, that's the way the world responds apart from Jesus Christ. But if you are a child of God, as Paul says, being imitators as beloved children of God, then this becomes sort of a, a, a barometer, again, of where you are in Christian growth and Christian maturity. Because as, as we begin the Christian walk, we look at a verse like that, therefore be imitators of God, and we say, yeah, yeah, great verse, great verse, let's go read the Gospels. The imitators of God. Wonderful. Let's go read about how Jesus heals people. Let's go read about how Jesus loves people. Let's read about all the good stuff. You see, when you come to Christ, you're so excited about everything. And, and you're so excited about how, how the, uh, uh, the, the, your life has been turned around and, and everything has opened up. And it's a wonderful experience. It's a joyful experience. And, and there's, there's, you know, there's no denying that, that we need that kind of joy in our lives. And so it's, it's about the joy and it's about the... The, the, the change in my life and the problems are solved and everything's fixed and, and it's wonderful. That's sort of the beginning point. And so you look at this verse and say, yeah, 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 let's, let's get to the good stuff elsewhere. I'm not saying that's, that's, that's bad. I'm just saying that's sort of immature as a believer in Jesus Christ. But if that was your, your reaction, you know, be imitators of God as, as beloved children of God. And your reaction was something like, I just hope he tells a funny story once during the sermon. You know, I'm having trouble. If that was your, re your reaction, you know, that, that's just sort of on the scale. So the, that's the beginning, the baby steps uh, in, in that kind of, of situation. But then the second way to approach that is where you say, the imitators of God. Wow. 
What a great way to live. You know, I don't have to figure it out. God shows me how. He shows me the way. He gives me the, the, the pattern. He gives me the path in Jesus Christ. And, and you look at that, be imitators of God. Wow, what a wonderful life to live. And so you, you go out and you realize, no, I, I don't want to sin anymore. And I, I really do want to live for God. And, and, and you're sort of walking through life and, you know, just, just convinced and, 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 uh, and, and assured of how present and active and wonderful God is in your life. You want me to imitate him? Right on, God. Just show me. I just want to do more and more and more. And, and you just have this wonderful enthusiasm. And I pray that you've gone through that and that even now it's a part of your life. Because as you come in and you mature, you realize that the Christian life isn't just God saves me, now I, I can do what I want. It is God saves me, now I can do what God wants. And that's the, that's the transformation. So if you look at that, then you're on the, as, as a joyful kind of thing, the imitators of God. That's marvelous and that's wonderful. But there's a third reaction I want you to consider. And maybe you experienced this a moment ago. And it's something that I would call the devastation of holiness. You look at this verse and you just want to cry. You look at this verse and you just don't know what to say. Because when you look at the verse, it says, therefore be imitators of God. Yes, beloved children, yes. As Christ loved us, love. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do that. But then Paul starts talking about what that means in verse 3. In fact, for the rest of the book, he'll talk about what that means. But I want you to look with me at verse 3. Ephesians 5, verse 3. I want to be an imitator of God. But sexual immorality and all impurity must not even be named among you. Sociologists tell us that about 20% of the human beings in this room struggle with sexual temptation and sin. And the other 80% are lying about it. It's just, there's just a struggle that goes on. It's, it's something that, that, that the devil does. He takes an appetite uh, that, that God created to bind uh, the man and a woman, husband, wife, father and mother together. And Satan uses it for selfish purposes and, and he uses it to try and numb us and, and anesthetize us to, to, to the world and, and it, it becomes a pursuit in and of itself. But, but um, you know, at least 20% of the folks in this room right now, this, this morning, are struggling with sexual temptation. And Paul says that that impurity and that immorality don't even name it don't even give it utterance among you you know when you start talking about things they, they get a reality and they start to grow and grow I'm, I'm tempted here to talk about the, the camel's nose under the tent flap and draw out a big story like I was the first one to come up with that analogy but it's basically like the camel's nose under the tent flap if you don't smack it with a rolled up newspaper it'll, you'll have the whole camel uh, before too long. And that, that's just what happens. Uh, it's something we struggle with. And I look at that and be imitators of God. And it's not like once in a while, it's like every day. It's a constant thing. And I realize there's a big area of my life that's not even close to, to the holiness of God. When you realize that, you're devastated, absolutely crushed. 
And that's when the devil, by the way, comes in and starts to whisper in your ear. The devil will say things like, see, I told you you couldn't do it. See, I told you you're not good enough. See, I told you you would fail. I'm going to jump to the end. But the Holy Spirit says, I knew about this before we got started. I haven't left you. We're here and we're going to walk through this thing together. And you might walk a little and stumble a little. You might fall a little and get up a little. But you know something? I've got more patience than you do. And I'll hang in there with you. But we can be devastated by the holiness of God when we see the depth and the persistency of our sin. Now, lest you think that this is just the sex lecture, go back to verse 3. Sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness. Covetousness is good old-fashioned American greed. It's just wanting stuff. It's wanting to have things. It's thinking that your life is going to be defined by, by more money or more possessions. You can, you can extrapolate that to have more power, more influence, more what, and more titles, whatever it is. I just want this stuff. I want things. It's just good old-fashioned greed. And I don't need a sociologist to tell me that all of us suffer from covetousness. We're jealous of other people when they get things we don't have. One of the hardest things to do is to rejoice with somebody who's rejoicing, especially when I'm not so happy, which, by the way, the Bible tells us to do too. It says, but even that covetousness, it cannot even be named among you. And that doesn't mean, you know, don't talk about it because I'm talking about it right now. But what he's talking about is don't even let it be mentioned as a viable aspect of life. Don't give it a, a single minuscule place in your life, your thought, your conversation. You know, years ago, there was a lady called Nancy Reagan. Uh, at the old people's service, I didn't have to explain this, but I'll explain it now. Nancy Reagan was the wife of Ronald Reagan, who was president of the United States back in the 80s. <laughs> you know, the gold rush days. No, but anyway, uh, but back in the 80s, and uh, one of the things she did was she, was she was appalled at the level of drug addiction in the United States. And so she started a campaign. The campaign was called Just Say No. Does anybody remember that? She said, Just Say No. And everybody laughed at Nancy Reagan. She said, What are you talking about? You're going to go to a drug addict and say, Well, just say no. And he's going to look at him and say, I didn't realize it was that simple. Okay, I'll just say no. Yeah. And that'll cure everything. I mean, that's ludicrous. And that's not what Nancy Reagan meant. What Nancy Reagan meant was let's stop joking about it. Specifically what she meant was, Johnny Carson, stop telling drug jokes in your opening monologue. They're not funny. The devastation this does to people's lives, they're just not funny. Johnny Carson was like this, what, who, uh, Jimmy Fallon of... of <laughs> See, we had our guys too. <laughs> you know. And they were just dumb. No, but anyway... And say, don't, don't junk, joke about being drunk and high with Ed McMahon. And don't keep talking about how funny it is to be high with the, uh, Doc Severinsen, the trumpet player. She said, just stop joking about it. It's not funny. And you know she was right. And by the way, 
drug jokes went off the air. Nobody passed a law. Nobody forced anybody. It was just everybody realized this isn't funny. And they went off the air. They're back now, by the way. Drug jokes are cool now, by the way. That's because we're making progress. (laughs) No, we're not. We're just going back where we were. But Paul says, don't even let it be named among you. Don't even let it be a a, a casual topic. of Keep it where it belongs. And that is out of your life in that regard. Okay? So uh, that's verse 3. Sexual immorality, covenants, and greed. Let them not even be named among you. That's proper among saints. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking. My dad once said, you can always tell when a comedian has run out of funny material. He'll start telling dirty jokes. And over the years... You and I both know that's true. When a guy isn't funny, he starts using vulgarity, profanity, because he doesn't have any imagination. All right. But don't joke around like that. You know, that's not what your life is about. In other words, don't let these things be part of your entertainment scheme. Now, now, now the Bible's starting to hit home here. Don't, don't let it be the things that you watch and the things that you think are entertaining, the things that you use to let your mind be uh, uh, taken off, the things of God are taken off um, what, what really matters in life. He says, no, none of that joking. These things are out of place. Instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this. Everyone who is sexually immoral or pure or covetous or greedy that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Don't let anybody deceive you. That's the way it is, folks. That's why when you look at this verse, it says, be an imitator of God. And then he goes on to say, because if you're not, there's no inheritance. That's why it's devastating to see the holiness of God. Because we know we're so far away from it. We wind up where Isaiah did. Isaiah... Uh, was worshiping in the temple and uh, the uh, presence of God became manifest in the temple and uh, it, 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 you know, Isaiah says he saw the train of, of, of God's robe and, the, and the, the, the room was filled with the smoke and it was just so evident that the righteous holy God of Israel was present and Isaiah who by the way wrote a big hunk of the Old Testament but Isaiah in response he said you gotta leave me alone God you know you this, I can't be here. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in, a, in the midst of people of unclean lips. I said, God, you are so holy and so righteous and I am such a sinner. And Isaiah was devastated by the holiness of God. So when you come to, Isaiah, to, to, Isaiah, to Ephesians 5.1 and you read, be an imitator of God. If your response was, Wow, that, that's happy. I'll get to that later. That's great. You, you, you're saved and you're on the road, but there's more. Or you look at it and say, yeah, I got that covered. I'm just going to live for Jesus. I'm going to live for God. That's going to be great. That's wonderful. That's a great step forward in maturing. But if you looked at that verse and you said, I am such a sinner, and you were devastated by being an imitator of God, that's a sign of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. It is even grace when conviction comes upon us. So that's why I say it's a barometer of where you are in Christian maturity. And the oddest thing is, 
in Christian maturity, when you're maturing in Christ, you'll read that verse and you will be devastated. But you'll be hopeful. And you'll be confident and you will be bold. And here's why. This is found in 1 John. First letter of John, chapter, well, it's chapter 1, and we'll start at verse 8. 1 John 1, 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no marginal note that says there's a time limit. You can only have so many tries. If you confess your sin three times, I'll forgive you. After that, I'm pretty fed up. It says if we confess our sins, we are forgiven and cleansed from unrighteousness. See, because you love Jesus, you love God, you don't take that for granted. But what you know is that when you do stumble and when you do falter, and it might be that besetting sin, it might be that, that, that sin that comes back again and again and again and whose temptation is, is constantly before you, it may be that problematic. But the Bible says if you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And here's why we're bold about it. He goes on to say, if we say we haven't sinned, we make him a liar. His word isn't in us. But in chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, I'm writing these things so you won't sin. Since I'm writing this so you don't sin. But if we do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. He is the way that our sins are removed from us and the wrath of God is, is taken off of us. He is the propitiation for our sins. He is our forgiveness. And not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. And so you read that, and, and I'm devastated by the, by, the, the, by the verse, and the holiness of God just devastates us. But what we understand is God knew that going in. Jesus knew that when he died for our sins. The Holy Spirit knew that when he filled our hearts. And as we live for Christ, though we stumble, he picks us up. As we live for Christ, though we grieve the Holy Spirit, he turns us around. And that's why we can live boldly for God. Not that we have to be perfect, but that we simply have to return and again and again and again to imitate God as his beloved children. So let me ask you again, what was your reaction when you saw that? The imitators of God. I, I mean, it's kind of strange, but I, I sort of pray you were devastated and heartbroken because that's the first step to knowing the glory of the grace of God and forgiveness and restoring us time and time again. So what I'd like to ask you to do this week is just get real and honest with God and confess your sin. I don't need to tell you what it is. You know. You know the specifics of it. You know how it manifests. But just confess to God, this is sin. You and I both know it. And then thank God for the gift of Jesus Christ. And thank God for the cross. Because on the cross, he took that sin away. And then ask the Holy Spirit to renew a right heart within you 
to press on in faith, to be an imitator of God. And if the next day the problem comes up again, confess your sin, thank God for the cross, and let the Holy Spirit pick you up and dust you off and keep walking in the faith. God is infinitely patient with us, but I want you to be that bold, even though devastated by the holiness of God, to know the joy of Christ in our lives who brings us to imitate God. Let's pray together. Honestly, Father, I don't know where we got the idea that we could ever do this by ourselves. Where we got the idea that it depended on our strength, our wisdom, and our understanding. But Lord, because it's all from you, it's all about you, it's all for you, I just ask your Holy Spirit to take possession of us in this room. Give us a clear and accurate understanding of the sinfulness in our lives, but give us a clearer and deeper understanding of your grace in Jesus Christ in our lives and move us to ever walk in grace and walk in obedience that our lives would look so much like Jesus that they would look like you. And I ask it in Jesus' name.